Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great podcast. I'm Talia Toha and welcome to our segment, which is Great Lengths. This is where we essentially sit down with a particular person from a very unique industry, whether that's something that is similar to mine or yours, uh, or something that is completely unique in their own way. And the reason for this is because we love adopting and adapting things that are often unusual, things that are often uncommon, and things that maybe not something that we often see in our line of work and in our lives, right? Because I am a huge believer in small giants, and I love, I love, love, love advocating people who are just purpose-driven and have this meaningful work that they want to put out in the world, but often just have a few connective tissues that's missing. And so I want to connect those tissues for you, doing that through just learning from other people and some of sharing some of my stories as well throughout this podcast. And so I love that we bring in multiple people from different domains, from different stages of earning and um, from different perspectives and obviously different parts of the world as well, which you guys know because you're here listening and you know that we have beautiful, beautiful listeners in 60 plus countries. So welcome, welcome. And today I want to share with you Danielle Mangena, which is just amazing because Daniel, after being diagnosed with the social anxiety related medical condition called Asperger, he had then went on to essentially get features on the Wall Street Journal, CBS, NBC, MarketWatch, Fox, on and on for his unique work on social dynamics, psychology of success, and money, among many, many different things. And he touches on meditation, energy, and now you guys who perhaps have been listening for a long time, you know that this is not my space. I don't know anything about meditation. I don't know anything about, you know, just kind of tuning into that area of life that's personally sometimes difficult to access to, right? In my line of work, I think is often lots of, a lot more logical. And so I loved bringing Dan on and asking him about all of these things because he talked about easier ways to overcome a crippling mindset block, right? Why he tells people to actually stop meditating, which I thought was interesting, and getting personal and professional breakthroughs without having to meditate, and secrets behind succeeding in the money game without losing yourself and your values. So much more of this and more. So without further ado, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, save, add, collect, and download. Let's dive in. Okay, Dan, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I cannot wait to start talking about all of the things that you've gone through <laughs> and all of the, you know, the story that you have, which you have a lot uh, of great um, insights. And of course, the beautiful work that you do, you know, with intention and with all of these um, purpose-driven methodologies that you create. But before we talk about all of that, I actually wanted to ask you uh, something a little bit more personal because I mm -hmm. think this is some, something that probably not a lot of people talk about or not 
uh, they don't feel comfortable talking about. I'm kind of curious um, because you've been diagnosed with Asperger, right? Yes. And I'm kind of curious to to hear a little bit more about that. And maybe if you can describe the moment when you heard it or found out about mm-hmm. it, what was that like? And so just take us through that a little bit, Dan. So one of the funniest things is that nobody guessed or said anything about it. And then after I was diagnosed at 27, it's like everyone's an Asperger's expert in my life. <laughs> it's like, like I would end up dating women that had something to do with it. I dated this woman who was like a, a head of year, a school for autistic kids. I dated this one girl. And I, it's not like I met them. They told me this is what they do. And I was like, oh my God, it's like they met them, really liked them. And then I find out this is what they do. I knew I dated this one girl for a good while and she like worked with like severely autistic kids that they would like give me these great coping mechanisms that really supported me. So they ended up being my angels that supported mm-hmm. me on my journey. Because again, I was 27 years old when this was diagnosed. So I spent 27 years as an autistic person trying to fit into a mainstream world and not knowing what was wrong. Yeah. So that manifested as severe general anxiety, severe social anxiety, crippling insomnia that I would have for, for periods of time. And yet when the diagnosis came in, it's like, oh, this is why you've got insomnia. It's because you've got so much anxiety going on. This is why you have these challenges in social settings. This is why you have these issues with people because you don't have the naturally occurring um, puzzle pieces that a neurotypical person would have in dealing with the world. It's like, oh, okay, (laughs) now I understand. And that actually gave me the opportunity to find out what my gifts were. And when I understood what my gifts were, I could say, oh, okay, so here's where I can use those in order to better navigate operating in a mainstream world. So now people are like, you're autistic. Yeah, but I know what my gifts are. Anything systemized, I can learn it. Um, I, I do have capacity around reading the energetics of a space, but I didn't have the interface to bring that into how to actually communicate with the space but then having that diagnosis created the space for me to learn more to get the right support and now I'm bringing these puzzle pieces together and now life's pretty darn cool yeah well and it's so interesting because I I think I was just speaking to someone else who was also you know not Asperger but she was diagnosed with dyslexia and quite late Mm -hmm. in her life and I mean late being kind of you know, um, 20s or 30s, which at that point mm-hmm. you've passed all of the, you know, <laughs> all the, the education, the academic, <laughs> right, the educational. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, that explains oh, okay. a lot, perhaps, right? <laughs> which is so hilarious because when you, I think, I think it's one thing when you grew up with it and you're guided mm-hmm. through it, right? It's another mm-hmm. thing though when you grew up thinking that maybe you're different, maybe you mm-hmm. just don't um don't quite get all of these things that other people are so natural at and you know Mm -hmm. kind of this this feeling of seclusion did that Mm -hmm. ever happen to you growing up or yeah you naturally i mean it sounds like you're obviously a terrific person so what was that like growing up i had no friends (laughs) oh no oh no so i i mean i remember um my my family moved to um so we're from East London. We moved out to Essex, which is the county to the east of London. We moved out there. And so we had new area, 
there was no ethnic diversity there at all. So mm-hmm. put it this way, when we took the picture the final year of high school, out of 880 students and staff, there were 18 ethnically diverse people, including staff in a picture. So that's not even like 10%. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's where we were. So there were all of these things that were challenges in terms of even being able to. And then on top of that, I lived with my foot in my mouth. I was the perpetually annoying person because I just didn't know how to, I was really awkward, but awkward to embarrassment. So growing up, my friends were cousins, <laughs> mum and dad's friends, kids that kind of had to be friends with me. <laughs> and yeah. then basically my younger sister, her friends would sometimes kind of out of pity, let me take along with them. So I, and that was basically my life up until, up until I was, I want to say 19, when I made my first billing when I was 19. And basically it was all older people, but older people were my friends. They weren't my friends to find out later, but they were kind of like dote on me and sycophant and all the things because yeah. I was useful. So I, I then understood, oh, if I'm useful, I can create a container that I can control because mm. I'm useful. Now, I didn't understand the depth to which the container was false at first. That took some experience. But that's literally what life was until I was diagnosed. And then I was able to actually start to construct real containers of, of actual connection. I had my two friends, best friends, Nathan and Jamie, who I met when I was 16, and they kind of just accepted me and loved me for who I was. And they've been, there were for many years, the friends, well, they're, they're more like my brothers. They're my, you know, my family that I chose. But other than those two, really, it was people that found me useful. People at school found me useful because I was good in school, so I could help with homework and so on and so forth. Um, I was entrepreneurial from quite young, so I had the financial benefit to being around me. Um, so that kind of carried me through to, to some extent. But in terms of genuine connections, that wasn't really until... Aside from the Nathan, Jamie, and people that kind of didn't have a choice by blood or or, or being forced, yeah. uh, that was that was literally it for me. Yeah, well, and I think it's kind of interesting how you know you kind of have these formulative years, right, growing mm-hmm. up, and and those foundations and those mindsets that, that we were fed or understood from the worldview that we grew up with really does inform you know how how we do things now that mm. we're in adulthood and are, we're with work often in un- unconscious, I want to say unconscious ways, right. Which is kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Sometimes mm. you don't know the things that's driving you, <laughs> the things that's like moving you. And so I'm sure you're going to touch on this in a little bit um, with your work and obviously mm-hmm. fantastic um, work. So I wanted to kind of ask though, because when you, you know, growing up with all of these challenges and mm-hmm. um, social anxiety, which I think maybe people who haven't been diagnosed with anything. I know that as an introvert myself, I've had social <laughs> anxiety before, even just <laughs> getting on camera, you know, all of the mm-hmm. speaking in public, which is just mm-hmm. hilarious now that I speak almost pretty consistently. <laughs> I was 10 and somebody had told me, you're going to be speaking for a, li- a living. And I'm just going to be like, no, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just uh, as far as this, you know, social anxiety is concerned. I know that you mentioned before we rolled that, you know, you had this experience being bullied, right? Growing up and your mm-hmm. teacher came to your defense, which 
this was this is definitely a topic of conversation in my household about whether or not teachers shouldn't intervene because I don't know how mm-hmm. the education system is in you know where you are or everywhere else across the world. I know when I grew up in Indonesia, that was definitely the case. When I mm-hmm. um, when I'm raising my kids here now, though in the U.S., I think coming to the aid of one particular kid is not a very um, they don't really view it as a very positive child rearing method here in the U.S. for mm-hmm. various reasons, politically, whatever. Right? I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but there's that's another topic. But I'm kind of curious when your teacher came to your aid. What was what was that? I mean, was that embarrassing? Was that kind of like, oh, this is great? It you know, made, it, no, it, it made things worse because of yeah. how it was done. So actually, what ended up happening, the way that it went, was that um, the headmistress came into the classroom while I was there and announced, "You, you, you, and you." <laughs> Dan's parents have called in to let us know that you're bullying him. You have to stop it now, or you'll be in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like really yeah. this yeah. is this is the solution yeah. you just rocked in <laughs> rocked in announced me as a snitch and <laughs> called them out in front of everybody yeah yeah that was yeah. that was worse for me <laughs> yeah but you bounced yeah. back right it was like one of those things when i'm sure at the time yeah. probably it feels like yeah, it's in the world it, the, the thing was, is that when, I mean, I was at that, so basically we moved the last year of, of our primary school. So I was, um, how old was I? I would have been 11 at the time. So we moved to our secondary school, which I think is your middle school, about 12. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So then um, when I went into what was middle school for me, I understood innately that okay I need to do something differently here so I need to approach this differently so I approached it more like a chess game and so I looked at it and I said okay well there's people from primary school that are going to be coming here but there's also going to be a lot of people that are not from primary school and so what I actually set out to do was basically stay very quiet and just observe and that's actually how I pretty much made it through um, identifying one or two people that I could walk to school with because they were in the same um near, we lived near enough e- of each other uh and I could cycle through those people so that I couldn't annoy anybody <laughs> so I'd cycle through those yeah. and that worked for most of the first year and then it kind of tailed off and then a new guy came to school who lived two roads down he was the year above me mm. my second year so I walked to school with him and there was two of them and I just didn't really talk I would just sort of just walk and I was like okay I'm not going to mess this up and then by the time we got to the last year I I'd started some entrepreneurship and I became useful and this is when the usefulness kind of kicked in and so people were my friend because I was useful by the time we got to third year fourth year I'd had the head teacher's prize so I had some popularity with staff and so I had a little bit of thing with people and then entrepreneurship went to another level and so and then the final year of secondary school I was the senior prefect on the honors roll and so I had power and position, so I didn't really yeah. care if people liked me or not. Yeah. And then I kind of had a, a clean slate when I went into what's your senior high, which is our sixth form, and the cycle went over again. And that's literally what I did. I kind of just like churned and burned 
relationships that I could kind of stretch into like annoying <laughs> and then moved on and kind yeah. of sort of moved on to greener pastures. Um, apart from meeting Jamie and, and, and Nathan, but they didn't go to my school. They weren't really from my area. So that gave me social outside. I also started to sing um, and I was in a oh. singing group. So I had social groups outside of school, which kind of leveled out the fact that I didn't really have relationships within school. Um, and I was useful because I could sing and I could write music. And so I became useful there. And that kind of just carried on the pattern. So that was what it was. And then obviously entrepreneurship went to the next level. Again, I became useful. And that's literally how life continued uh, for many years. Kept going, yeah. Did you, mm-hmm. was this kind of sort of the beginning of, because I know that you had studied essentially, you know, this, this social behavior and dynamics mm-hmm. between people and almost the psychology mm-hmm. of it, and reasons why people mm-hmm. do certain things, which I think is important for anyone looking to do good mm-hmm. work because mm-hmm. good work by definition needs, there's people involved, right? People that you mm-hmm. impact, people that you work with, all of these, whether you're working for an office or an employer or your mm-hmm. business, doesn't matter. So I'm kind of curious when you was this kind of the beginning of that when you started studying for instance you mentioned pickup artists was that (laughs) yeah which i think is fascinating that you study pickup artists is awesome yeah so this is the the crazy thing is that so i had a really embarrassing situation that happened that my sister loves to to laugh at me about and i feel when i go back into my mind i feel this is where the moment came in where i knew i had to do something about this and is that basically my dating career was girls that would find me cute and then I could stay quiet enough for for it to kind of develop into something and then inevitably I'd mess it up after about a month mm. or two and that would be the end of it and that was basically how life <laughs> continued the cycle. <laughs> Th- that was the cycle and yeah. then um funny. then something happened I think I was about 20 I want to say 20 years old um my we were at this event a social event my sister was there and I got talking to this young lady. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not messing this up. I'm talking to this really cute girl and we're having this conversation and it's going and I'm speaking and I'm not messing it up. And I got excited <laughs> and I messed it up in one of the most embarrassing ways. I'm not going to repeat the exact thing that I oh, said. You have but to I tried, I tried to tell a joke. I tried to tell a joke okay. and be really witty. And it just, it just, she just looked at me like, huh? <laughs> and then just walked away. And my sister was not too far and laughed. And she laughed. and that's why I was like, okay, I need to, I need to, I need to find out how to do this. And so I kind of was like, well, there's got to be, there's got to be some way to kind of find out what to do about this. And I, I yeah. found something called the mystery method. Mystery this method. This guy called the mystery method. This guy called mystery. He's the original pickup artist. So Neil Strauss learned from mystery method. So Neil Strauss popularized pickup artistry and that whole world. But mystery was the first one that really started kind of doing that. Well, you kind of had um, a couple of guys that kind of did the NLP into it. I can't remember the name of some mm. of the guys, but there were some people that did it. But the person, the person who kind of popularized it and started it as kind of an enterprise was this guy called Mystery. And so I studied this mystery method and then it just clicked. And I didn't, when I was diagnosed and I understood how my brain worked, I understood why it clicked. But basically this kind of just worked. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then I started kind of developing a, a, a romantically social life because I understood how to build these constructs of how to not mess up because I had some a choreography to follow. Mm-hmm. And then, but again, it wasn't meaningful. There were like these empty 
empty holes kind of dotted around. So we'd hang out, you know, it'd be cool and this and that. And then it would kind of fizzle out because then the playbook would end. <laughs> there was only me left. Yeah. But then what happened when I was diagnosed, <laughs> when I was diagnosed, I understood, oh, I understand anything that's systemized. And so then I realized, oh my God, that's why that made sense. And that's why that made sense. And that's why I have anxiety with this. And that's why this makes sense. And so, yeah, actually, before before we kind of dive further into that, you know, how that system mm-hmm. works, share just a fraction of what Asperger is, just real briefly, because some people might not know what Asperger okay. is. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Asperger just means that the, the brain is wired differently, just like with autism. But with the way that I like to explain it the most simply, if, if you imagine an autistic person that can communicate with the outside world, that's Asperger's. In like a rudimentary easy to grasp level it's someone on the autistic spectrum that can actually communicate with the outside world so my brain is wired to see everything as black and white ones and zeros very binary um, it needs structure in order to function i don't have that freestyle freestyling that may appear freestyling is actually structured patterns that i've actually practiced and rehearsed so social communication whereas someone that's mainstream could be like or neurotypical could be like oh you know i'm just having a conversation whereas for me I have to choreograph the conversation. I need to remember to pause. I need to remember to make eye contact. I need to remember that everything that's inside of me that wants to get out is not the only thing that needs to get out. There's a, there's a two and four. So there's, this is what's going on in my brain the entire time. It's always active, especially in social settings, because I don't have the natural wiring to move into that uh, as automatic unconscious behavior. Mm. Well, and in a lot of ways, I think the role of people who, um, you know, to your point, do these meaningful work, I think. And, you know, even if that system or that framework that you followed that time for that relationship may not have really the depth that you're looking for, but in a lot of ways, you know, the things that you and I do, the things that other people are doing, people are listening to this podcast, it's almost like you have to deconstruct certain things to, so that other can, so that others mm-hmm. can then reconstruct it in their own mm-hmm. way right and all, at least have a framework to work with because i think yes people view the world very differently and i think people who are able to understand those different viewpoints what's behind those viewpoints right all of these things that's very nuanced really can you know rise to the to the level where they feel like okay this type of work is really really amazing which i think is fantastic mm-hmm. that you kind of almost discovered that organically through dating and, and this <laughs> so it's really fun that's really which goes yeah. to the point that really essentially nothing in your life is really quite wasted because everything is kind of the foundation <laughs> of the all of those things, even things that didn't quite work out yeah <laughs> right? 100%, 100%. which is really awesome now mm-hmm. you know kind of speaking on that a little bit more I'm kind of curious because you know you it sounds like you have almost like um, a crescendo and a buildup towards the revelation that you wanted to do what you do. And before you and I rolled, we talked about, you know, where we've been, where we've lived and people that we Mm -hmm. know. And you mentioned that you had this beautiful revelation. Is it in Mm -hmm. a mountain in Santa Fe? Yeah, it was in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know, Santa Fe is is just this beautiful quaint area in, in the U.S. And so, yeah, share a little bit more about that story. What happened there? Were you on a personal trip, professional trip? I was at a meditation retreat. And the funny thing was, is that um, the retreat hadn't actually been that great for me. Um, there was a lot, there was stuff going on. The story about what was going on, there was stuff going on. And 
I'd been kind of toying with this idea of leaving my business and coming to step into to doing what I do now for some months and then been some Jonah and the Whale situations going on, some challenges with that. And I think I put a lot of pressure on this retreat to kind of do more for me. Um, and I hadn't really been able to drop in. So the day after, everything had wrapped. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And uh, I've been there for seven days. And then I, it was the Monday morning. And what happens is, generally speaking, after the event, people go out and do another walking meditation in the morning and before they go home. So it's like 6 8 in the morning, February, Santa Fe. So, you know, it's bloody cold, right? Yeah. So I had hot pockets in my gloves, in my pockets. I had yeah. three, four layers on, hat, scarf, the whole nine yards. You know, I'm walking around doing this and I had this, this visceral, vivid experience where I was almost future paced into what my life would be like if I just surrendered and dropped in and did it. Mm. And I looked at everything and I was like, oh my God, I've been, I've been holding back from this. I want it now. And I, I walked away from that retreat and I closed down the website for my old business. I've, I've since reopened it, but I literally just went all in. I went all in and packed up the house and put everything in my brother's garage, packed a suitcase, a suit carrier and a backpack and went off teaching beyond intention around the world. Yeah. Well, this is, I think this is interesting because when you talked about that revelation, I mean, I discovered a lot of re- revelations, you know, whether that's on a personal front or a professional front, business front, usually on a time when it's quiet, right? When I have time mm-hmm. for myself or to myself and mm-hmm. it's not, it's never really meditation. And I've, I've, I'm probably the first person to admit I'm terrible at meditation, everybody always says, you know, meditate. And I'm, I just don't know how I think that's probably my personality. I'm like always on the go. And I, yes, I mm-hmm. am kind of this introvert who likes peace and quiet, but I think at the bottom of it, there's, I never was ever taught, you know, how to do mm-hmm. it. And I think mm-hmm. meditation has this kind of connotation that it has to be, you know, whether that's religious or it has to be kind of, you know, this, this yoga kind of pose, mm-hmm. when in fact, I think really on a broader sense, perhaps, I don't know if you agree with this, meditation is really just a time for you to, to quiet everything, right? Like when, whatever, I, I whatever agree. that might I be. I agree completely. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I love to remind people is that everyone has their own access to, I mean, meditation is a doorway to a place that place of peace, that place of, of quiet, that place of being unplugged, stroke plugged in. And people access it in different ways. There are people that access it through going for a run. There are people that access it through going to the beach. I find, look at my, my son's five months this weekend, I find just sort of sitting and talking to him, I drop in, right? So playing, I, I get into that space when I'm playing the piano, right? It, everybody has their own way to dance with it. And I, I actually kind of raising the battle cry to stop telling people how they need to access that space and actually invite more people to find their own unique way to access that space, which may be meditation. Um, you go to any tantric master and they'll tell you they get it through sex. You know, it's, just, it's whatever, it's whatever rocks your boat, you know? And I think people should put less pressure on themselves to do it other people's way and have more fun finding the way that works for them. Yeah. Well, and I think this is, this is the part where yeah, I guess the, the the biggest difficulty that people face is when they're they're told, okay, the only way that you need to meditate is to wake up at like you know two two o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, eat like a bunch of hard boiled eggs and go to the gym and then you're right. Like I, I just I'm like that's not me. Like I don't I'm not gonna like <laughs> pump iron. 
I'm sure that works for people, but it's just not me. You know what I mean? So then there's this whole, I highly, I definitely agree with you in that there's, and moments that you, that caught you off guard, even when you're not really particularly going after a a result, but you Mm -hmm. kind of uncover it through sort of these organic ways that you're kind of like, okay, wow, that's, you know, I, this is surprising to me. I feel like that's, I think almost like to your point, and we'll talk about, you know, setting intentions uh, in just a second here, because this works into that topic. I feel like as long as you have that uh, awareness to hone in on that, you use the word access, hone in on that access point. I think that's mm-hmm. really the more important part, I think. So I don't know if you I agree. agree. With that. I agree yeah, so, no, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Is that why you said you, you tell people to stop meditating? <laughs> that's a different conversation yeah. <laughs> for me it's that in a nutshell to stop something it has to be in motion so i'm not telling people to not start i'm encouraging people to find their access point and play with it but to recognize that that's only one piece of an overall puzzle there's more to be done um, that access to deal with your emotional state with your spirit with your energy levels then we have to look at the mindset we have to look at whether our belief systems actually facilitate us being able to receive what we're going out to create as an intention, as a goal, as an objective, as a dream, as a passion, as a desire. And then we have to embody it. We have to be ready to receive it. You know, I can have a vision board of the perfect love and pray for it every day. If I don't believe I'm worthy of it, or if I'm actually living as a hermit in the mountains, the, the, the statistic probability of that happening becomes very, very low. Whereas when I actually look at my mindset, am I actually, do I have self-image that actually sustains a connection to being in a loving, healthy relationship with this person? And am I embodying the kind of person that's actually going to be able to be in that relationship and hold it? Am I in places where they would be? Am I available for them to meet me? Because if I'm not, again, the probability goes right down. And that's why I told people to stop meditating, do it, but then stop and get on with the rest of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think, well, I like, I like that you really, do, you really did kind of highlight and underline the fact that, okay, you do have to believe in the, our capability, right. To mm-hmm. manifest that I think is, is your word. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, on the back of that, or maybe before this, you also happen to, you know, write a book called The Money Game. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people don't equate the two or they don't, or they feel like those two areas of life are completely separate, right? Mm-hmm. One is a lot more kind of personal and, and something that's not really to be uh, brought in per se to the workspace and the other mm-hmm. a lot more kind of in that mm-hmm. forefront of work life, right? And mm-hmm. um, income and all that. So how do you reconcile the two? I know that we talk on the podcast sometimes about the, our relationship with money. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, um, just a quick overview for people who haven't read your book, what is mm-hmm. money game about and how does that relate to what you were just sharing about as far as having the right mindset to create something that's meaningful and right for you? Brilliant. Well, first and foremost, life's not something any of us are going to get out of the life. So why take it so seriously? So everything really should be, everything that we gamify releases that pressure and that pressure actually makes us more available to receive and then actually enjoy what we're receiving. So that's why I called it the game. 
And then when it comes to the manifestation of money, which is what the money game is, it, it's, a, it's a, a playbook to manifest money and it, it works. We've had people manifest tens of thousands in days. We've got people that apply the principles and create, you know, six, seven, eight figure businesses. And what it essentially does is it shows you how to gamify the development of an emotional resonance that allows you to hold an increasing amount of money, uh, a mental acceptance of your availability to actually have and enjoy big amounts of money and to do it in a way that actually requires less hands-on work by you and more a quote-unquote manifested experience. Um, it's got 15 steps to it that you follow and it, it takes you through exactly how to, to do each step and then shows you how to take these principles and apply them to anything else. So my firm belief is that two things aren't manifested differently. You know, God didn't say, oh, this is going to be created that way, but oh, that's going to be created the other way. It's all the same thing, but it's our beliefs, our stories, our narratives, our lack of worthiness, for example, that create this separation, these differentials actually make it that maybe we can manifest things in our health, but we can't do it with our relationships. So we can't do it with our money. So what this does is start to strip away those illusions and give you a tool that you can then apply to anything that you want. And we actually show you how to apply it in your career, how to apply it in your relationships, how to apply it in your business and all these kind of good things. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to hear, because there are a lot of people who have their own personal philosophy on money and mm-hmm. I've definitely involved mine over the course of the years. And I didn't know certain things that, that um, I now know and have learned often through epic fails, but what was your, which is always, you know, kind of a a shot into the, you know, into your own foot essentially. But Mm -hmm. what was your relationship with money before you discovered all of these things? Right. And did you grow up with a healthy relationship with money? And I, maybe Mm -hmm. we should define what healthy relationship with money is. Like, is that something of Mm -hmm. a taboo that perhaps Mm -hmm. your folks didn't talk about? Definitely. My mum's super duper teen Jesus conservative Christian. So she's money's the root of all evil. Yeah. So, so my being an 11 year old is like, I'm going to be a millionaire. It's like, that's not something that we spoke about at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, So it also meant that, you know, that the practical things that, are demanded of us in order to hold the manifestation of money I didn't have. So I had a dogged self-belief, but then I had no vibrational experience, no emotional experience of holding bigger amounts of money. So what would happen is, is that I would manifest lots and lose. So I made and lost two multi-million pound fortunes by the age of 23. So I could create it, but it couldn't stay because I didn't have the vibrational frequency to hold it. And I didn't know the practical frameworks and structures and have the experience. I was young and untested. So what ended up happening was that my journey has been learning to hold more in terms of like my frequency, my resonance, my emotional field, and learning the practical side to holding it. Learning what I now call empowered money management. Not saving for a rainy day because something's going to go wrong, but having those frameworks and structures to, do, to, to, to keep money and to have it grow for you. So that's what it's been. It, it's been an interesting journey, uh, but it's it's been one that actually now allows me to more effectively support people who also didn't have that training and to bring it in in a way that's not lack and fear driven, but expansive, fun, playful and gamified. Mm. Well, and I think it's so interesting that you mentioned, you know, this all started out obviously with your your mom's uh, philosophy, you know, money is mm-hmm. root of all evil. And there are all these mm-hmm. 
words that that gets thrown around, right? Of course, like when mm. CT talks about invisible script on how, you know, we we've been educated uh, subconsciously mm. again on what that means, um, and uh, you know, and it's better to save rather than spend or whatever, right? And it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, real estate always grows or what, you know, all of these different things mm-hmm. that happen. And to me, it's always been, um, still is to a lot of degree, which is why this topic is interesting to me. To me, it's always been kind of a logical game, right? If mm-hmm. it's a, whatever, it's a game or decision, whatever it's always been on the logical side and I never really realized just quite how much you talk about the emotional aspect of it, how much it actually does uh, stem from a lot of emotional things, right? You kind of feel Mm -hmm. uncomfortable spending it in places where when you grew up, your folks and family wouldn't have spent that same amount of money there. Right. So it's kind of, Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to me. I'm kind of curious, you know, when, without going into kind of the, the deeper aspect and people can obviously read your book and everything for specifics, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, what is usually like a, one of the big mistakes that people do when they try to understand money a little bit more and tie that into the personal enrichment of their lives? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we often do is we lose sight of the fact that without going too far down the rabbit hole with this, it's been scientifically demonstrated that everything in physical experience is, you know, 99.999% empty space energy. And when we look at what was in, we were invited to see from the quantum mechanics aspect of what happened with the double split experiment, we see that energy only takes shape and form physically according to some kind of expectation from the observer. So I don't want to go too far down this. I just want to kind of, pull on this because basically our entire reality that we witness and experience is a result of our relationship through expectation to an infinitely potent energy that's got infinite potential about the shape that it takes. And our unconscious mind that moves at 10,000 to 10 million times the speed of the conscious mind is taking whatever blueprint or pattern that we're holding in that space and projecting out that expectation moment to moment to moment around which energy collapses almost like a like a steel frame and creates our world. Wow. When we understand that everything ultimately comes down to that just energy, then nothing has to be anything. So all of these ideologies that we're being fed and given, uh, all of these narratives and uh, what I call agreements that we are subscribed to about how things have to be, only have to be there so long as we continue to hold that agreement and to, to keep that belief system. Ergo, money's the root of all evil, I can choose to continue to subscribe to that agreement and have the emotional response of that money's the root of all evil. I don't want to be evil, therefore I can't have money. Subconsciously sabotaging my, my, my relationship to money, therefore push it away. Or I can do what I do, which is that's my mum's narrative. I don't judge her for it. I love her regardless of what her narratives around it are. And I claim back my power. This is what my work beyond intention is. I claim back my power so that I can form my own narrative consciously, free from whatever programs are embedded within me. And then from that space, that blank slate, I say what I want my relationship with money to be. Then the expectations have a chance to be something different. Then that unfolding and manifesting of what I experience can be something different. It can be more abundant. It can be more playful. 
Or I can decide, you know what, it's a lot of hard work for me to go through the rigmarole of changing this. I can kind of deal with that. So I'll kind of leave it and stay where I am. But I'm not going to waste energy complaining about it or bitching about it. I'm going to take that extra energy and put more focus on things in my life that I do enjoy. Because the sad fact is so many people are wasting time, energy, money, resources trying to change something that at a deep level they don't want to change. And that's why it doesn't change. Versus mm. accepting the parts of my reality that I'm okay with or even the ones I'm unconsciously addicted to, but I'm not prepared to do the work to do something about changing. That's fascinating. And with that, what a great reminder, Dan. This is amazing. Can you share with everyone who's listening where they can learn more from you? And then we can wrap up the interview. The easiest place to do everything is dreamwithdan.com. From there, everything's on there. My blogs, my books, podcasts, social media links, the whole nine yards. But it's dreamwithdan.com. We've got some free resources on there as well in case people want to get some, um, some free support. Amazing. Dan, thank you so much for being on. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it too, Tony. Thank you. Be sure to hit follow, subscribe, save, add, collect, and download. Let's dive in.